With Ukraine dominating our headlines, the crisis involves grand geopolitical chess moves between the USA and its NATO allies and Russia. But what about the object of their competition? What about Ukraine? My name is Dr. Samir Puri. I'm a senior fellow in hybrid warfare at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, author of a book entitled The Great Imperial Hangover, and a former election and ceasefire monitor in Ukraine. Although I'm an outsider to Ukraine, I've done my best to understand the country. I served as an election observer on five occasions, including the 2004 Orange Revolution. And after war broke out in 2014, I spent a year in East Ukraine as a ceasefire monitor with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. I'm going to share with you a ground level view of Ukraine's evolution, explaining some of the key milestones along the road to the current crisis. Fundamentally, this is a story of Russia's quest to maintain its influence in Ukraine. Russia seeks influence in both strategic and cultural terms and fears a permanent loss of influence if Ukraine joins Western-dominated structures like NATO or the European Union. Russia's desperation is an outcome of the end of empire, in this case the USSR's end in 1991. How Russia maintains influence in its former imperial dominions is an ongoing question for those in the Kremlin. Now, I have seen how far Ukraine has evolved from its Soviet past. I've heard the aspirations of young people in cities like Kiev and Lviv to modernize their country. But at the same time, geography cannot be changed. Ukraine must find a way to exist as Russia's neighbor and to house those within its population who have a greater affinity for Russia. These tensions are far from new. When I first worked in Ukraine in 2004 as an election observer, drama awaited in the Orange Revolution so-called after the party colours of the pro-Western presidential candidate, Viktor Yushchenko. Snow draped Kiev's independent square as chants of Yushchenko kept up the spirits of his supporters. They camped out to protest the electoral victory of his arch-rival, the pro-Russian presidential candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, who had polled well in the East. Adding to the drama, Yushchenko emerged in the middle of the campaign with a disfigured face. He claimed that pro-Russian forces had poisoned him. In the end, it was a cocktail of street protests, irregularities reported by election observers and pressure from Western governments that forced a rerun of the vote in December 2004. And the Orange Revolution Party won this rerun. Russia sat on its hands and watched as Yanukovych, its favoured candidate, lost the race. A geopolitical tug of war was already underway over Ukraine. But back in 2004, Russia wasn't powerful enough to intervene and undermining Yushchenko from afar was all Russia could do until Yanukovych recaptured the presidency in 2010. And even this was not all it seemed. In 2017, during the FBI's investigation into Donald Trump's campaign links to Russia, it transpired that veteran US lobbyist Paul Manafort was bought, paid handsomely by Yanukovych's campaign to help him secure the presidency. This anecdote should give us pause for thought. Although a democracy, Ukraine has emerged from an oligarchical political system influenced by big businessmen, backroom deals, and in Yanukovych's case, corruption. Which is why a decade after the Orange Revolution, Ukraine experienced another popular revolution. But this time, Russia was no longer a geopolitical minnow. This time, Russia would fight. In 2014, Russia annexed Crimea and stoked a separatist insurgency in the eastern Donbass region. I was seconded to the OSCE mission, monitoring what was happening on the front line. We were not peacekeepers, so we had no means to stop the fighting, only to help prevent things escalating further. 
During my year in Ukraine, I saw artillery being used by the belligerents to bombard each other over an increasingly static front line, which bisected Donetsk and Luhansk. Our monitoring patrols visited both sides, including Ukrainian soldiers digging trenches to shelter from the cold and from the shells being logged by weapons that looked like relics from a bygone war. I witnessed a particularly fateful event in February 2015 as cluster bombs rained down on the city of Kramatorsk in an attempt by Russian-backed forces to bombard the Ukrainian armed forces' so-called anti-terrorist operations headquarters. As we drove past the bodies, we saw a tail fin of a rocket protruding from the smashed pavement having disgorged a deadly payload. I had returned from a patrol to a town called Debaltseva to meet a military body comprising Ukrainian officers and uniformed Russian officers who Ukraine had officially allowed into the war zone. At the height of the war in 2014-15, day in, day out, I would see these Ukrainian and Russian officers sitting in the same room. I looked at the generals heading each delegation and it struck me. Given their seniority, they may well have campaigned together in Afghanistan during the Soviet Union's war in that country in the 80s. But now they stood at opposite sides of the geopolitical chessboard. To some, this conflict was fratricidal, but to others, Russia had simply invaded its neighbour. Each of us makes up our own mind on this matter. Russia's official line on Ukraine frames a crisis as stemming from a Western obsession with preventing so-called rapprochement between Russia and Ukraine, a narrative that re-emerged in 2021 when Putin wrote, in his words, of the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Ukraine's fate exemplifies the dilemmas that can haunt a post-imperial borderland arising from histories that do not heed the lines on the map. However this crisis plays out, there is no sidestepping the fact that Ukraine must balance its ties between Russia and the West.